Welcome to Words Matter with Katie Barlow and Joe Lockhart. Welcome to Words Matter. I'm Katie Barlow. Our goal is to promote objective reality. As a wise man once said, everyone is entitled to their own opinion, not their own facts. Words have power and words have consequences. Our guest today is the Robert M. Gates Senior Fellow and General Counsel at the Center for a New American Security. Carrie Cordero is also an adjunct professor of law at Georgetown University Law Center, go Hoyas, a CNN legal analyst, and a contributing editor of Lawfare. Carrie has served in numerous senior positions at the Department of Justice and the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, including as counsel to the Assistant Attorney General for National Security, Senior Associate General Counsel at the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, and Attorney Advisor at the U.S. Department of Justice, where she handled critical counterterrorism and counterintelligence investigations. Carrie Cordero, Welcome back to Words Matter. Thanks so much, Katie. Carrie, we're very lucky to have you today, and our listeners are very lucky given your background and and the complexity uh, of the issues that have surfaced now in the last roughly two weeks. I want to start by establishing a, a couple of things. You know, there's a lot of noise out there. I think a lot of people are already talking about the deep state and someone working within the government to undermine the president. There's a line in the whistleblower's complaint that I want to read and then get you to uh, uh, to react to. It is routine for U.S. officials with responsibility for a particular region or a functional portfolio to share such information, the contents of a telephone call, with one another in order to inform policy making and analysis. So it's... Within the government and the interagency process, information is being shared all the time. So there's nothing nefarious about uh, the whistleblower having this information, correct? I think that's right. Given that the phone call was between the president and a foreign leader, there would be individuals on the National Security Council. There would be individuals within the intelligence community who have various responsibilities for that region of the world and the issues that originate from that region of the world, Ukraine and the surrounding area, that would all be knowledgeable about interactions between at high levels between the two governments. So talk a little bit about the process. In this whistleblower complaint, again, he or she writes, I'm deeply concerned that the actions described below constitute, quote, a serious or flagrant problem, abuse or violation of law or executive order that, quote, does not include difference of opinions concerning public policy matters. I'm therefore under the law fulfilling my obligations to report this information. Talk about the procedure of how a whistleblower comes to a conclusion and how it gets to where we are now. Now that we have the whistleblower complaint in front of us, this complaint was thoughtfully, uh, seriously developed in a way that looks to me like it was prepared, knowing that it eventually would probably become public. Um, It carefully quotes the statutory sections. It is well-crafted and organized and clearly written. So all of which is to say the complaint reads to me that the individual who filed it understood the gravity of the uh, situation and understood the scrutiny that the complaint itself would fall under. And so it wasn't just something that was thrown together as if, you know, somebody writes it in an email. This was a carefully 
drafted and thought through complaint. The second piece with respect to that part you mentioned does not include differences of opinions concerning public policy matters. So what that is intended to address is that all the time there are individuals in the government who are employees, individuals who are employees of the intelligence community who might disagree with policy going on in the U.S. government. That happens every single day as a person who is working in the intelligence community knows one sets aside their own personal views about policy matters or political matters when they go to work every day. So that's intended to be clear that the person is not making this complaint because they disagree with the president's policies or the administration's policies, and that this is not about a policy disagreement. This is about what the complainant perceived the way the statute reads, a serious or flagrant problem, abuse or violation of the law. So much of the discussion um, in recent days has surrounded the phrase urgent concern. Uh, The inspector general of the intelligence community believed that the details of the complaint from the whistleblower were of urgent concern and and that set in motion um, the whistleblower protection and a a timeline. But the head of uh, the national um, intelligence, uh, Mr. McGuire, went to the Justice Department for an opinion, the Justice Department led by Attorney General Barr, that took the view that this was an urgent concern. Explain what urgent concern is and why it seems to be so important here. So urgent concern is uh, is in the statute. And so it has to concern something that is within the purview of the director of national intelligence. And that's where it seems to be there was a disagreement between the inspector general of the intelligence community and the Department of Justice, which was asked by the DNI General Counsel to give an opinion. The Justice Department took the position that because the matter at issue pertained to the president's communication and discussion with a foreign leader, that that wasn't something that fell under the director of national intelligence's Authority, And that was one of the reasons that they held up providing the complaint to Congress. It looks like the inspector general took the position that because the allegation was in part about the president soliciting foreign assistance in the campaign or election process as we shift into the 2020 presidential campaign, that because election interference is a subject matter that is under authority and preventing against it and collecting intelligence about the intentions of foreign governments to interfere in our elections, that that very much does fall under the authority of the director of national intelligence. And so there was a substantive disagreement about the application of that urgent concern. Well, Carrie, you're a pretty smart lawyer. Who's right? I think there is a strong argument that given the subject matter, which is plainly clear from the text of the transcribed call or the summary of the phone call that has been just released so far, that the president endeavored 
to solicit the assistance of a foreign government in the election in order to obtain derogatory political information to harm his political opponent. That falls within the issues that the director of national intelligence and the intelligence community are involved with as a heightened matter of concern. I mean, if we go back and we look at the recently departed from office director of national intelligence worldwide threat briefing from early 2019, interference in elections and democratic processes was something that was featured prominently. And the intelligence community has been very um, consistent about its communication to the public and to its congressional overseers that foreign interference in elections remains uh, an ongoing issue. So there is, in my judgment, substantial ground for the individual to have made the complaint and for the inspector general to have thought it was appropriate to provide to the congressional intelligence committees. And just stepping back from the analysis of the text uh, of the statute in particular, because the individual who filed this complaint, uh, at least based on what we know so far, is, is a member of the intelligence community, I think it's safe to uh, assess that, that if the person could not make the complaint to the inspector general of the intelligence community, where else could the person have gone? I mean, this is somebody who has really made an effort to follow the law, to follow the procedures. They did not go running to the media. They did not go running directly to Congress even. They went to the inspector general of the community with in which they are that person is employed. And so there is no other recourse for this person to identify wrongdoing that they believe they have information about. Carrie, before Katie gets into the the details of the phone call and the effort um, uh, by President Trump to allegedly uh, influence the uh, behavior of the Ukrainian government with the military aid, do you have any concern given uh, how political the Justice Department has become and uh, Attorney General Barr's role, particularly in how he handled the Mueller report, that somehow politics uh, had a role here? Well, the analysis of the Office of Legal Counsel obviously would be in this circumstance was would, would have been coordinated uh, with the Office of the Attorney General. Their analysis is not outrageous. Um, so I think, I mean, one can make the argument that they make. I don't agree with it. I do think that the attorney general obviously severely damaged his own credibility with his handling of the Mueller report. Um, and so there are substantial questions about whether uh, he is willing to allow the Justice Department to be improperly influenced by the president and the White House. And the text of the phone call, of course, reveals that the president certainly views Attorney General Barr really in much the same way that he views uh, Rudy Giuliani as his personal lawyer. So in the text of the phone call that we have now with the Ukrainian president, uh, President Trump says that he will have both Rudy Giuliani and Attorney General Barr 
follow up with the Ukrainian government about uh, the potential investigations of the Bidens. And so that indicates that certainly the president views Attorney General Barr uh, much like a personal lawyer or a campaign advisor or somebody who is on his team uh, and willing to use the instruments of the Justice Department uh, to further his political objectives. I think it will be very interesting to see, as the facts are revealed over the next few days, whether Attorney General Barr knew his name was being used in that way. So, Carrie, I want to talk about the July 25th call. And now we have the whistleblower complaint that describes the call and several different individuals' perspectives of that call and the readout of the call itself from individuals participating on the call. And we know that there are several members of the intelligence community and others who were listening in, taking notes, participating in this call. And I want to rely on your breadth and depth of experience here, particularly with ODNI, to talk about the human element of what it would be like to be in the room when something like this happens. And we know from the complaint, the whistleblower's complaint, that uh, it says directly, quote, the president used the remainder or the after an initial exchange of pleasantries, the president used the remainder of the call to advance his personal interests. And we know from the now unclassified readout of the call at the bottom of page two that President Zelensky is talking about purchasing more javelins. And the very next line from the president is, I would like you to do us a favor, though. So given all of that information and knowing the types of civil servants that are human and participating in this call, what is going through their minds or what would go through your mind in the room as this is happening? And then what do you do in the immediate aftermath? of that? Well, first of all, it's it, you're right to point out that there would have been a number of people who were knowledgeable about the phone call taking place, who perhaps were listening or were who, not, who were knowledgeable about it right after it occurs. There's whoever uh, wrote up the summary of it. Uh, it's a little unclear, really, from that release of the text of the call whether it was transcribed or whether it was somebody's notes. I mean, it is quite detailed, although I have seen some reporting pointing out discrepancies between the uh, amount of text that's been released versus the time that the call was supposed to have taken place. So um, I, I think we still don't know exactly whether that summary that's been released is the every word that was spoken in the conversation. I think given the context of the president uh, asking the foreign leader for a favor uh, in the same, nearly the same breath that the foreign leader just described uh, defense issues between the two countries and a potential purchase of arms, that Many national security officials who would have been listening to that or made aware of it quickly would have known that that something very wrong was going on here. Um, it also one of the issues that that I've been trying to emphasize in the discussion of this this week is that this is exactly what the Mueller report predicted. So the report was all about volume one was all about laying out the 2016 Trump campaign's willingness to receive foreign assistance. So I think it is nearly impossible that national security officials, when they 
listened to or became aware of this conversation that they would not have immediately recognized that this was not only the president being willing to receive foreign assistance, but that this was him requesting foreign assistance uh, to find uh, political dirt on opponents and to uh, look into issues that are old and stale regarding and and conspiratorial regarding the Hillary Clinton emails. Um, Both issues were mentioned in the phone call. So uh, I think it would have been jarring to officials. And now that we have the text of the complaint, it certainly looks like individuals who listened to the call or were knowledgeable at the call were talking about it with each other and uh, acknowledging that there uh, was something amiss. Yeah, I actually wanted to ask you about um, both of those mentions uh, in the readout of the call because there are ellipses in some interesting places. And I don't know if those ellipses indicate perhaps a redaction type uh, removal of information or just information or, or something getting harder to hear for those participating on the call. But the first place where there's an ellipses in the readout, it says, quote, I would like you to find out what happened happened with the whole situation with Ukraine. They say crowd strike, followed by an ellipses. Uh, And then the second one is Biden went around bragging that he stopped the prosecution. So if you can look into that ellipses. So first, if you have any uh, understanding of what those ellipses indicate, whether that is an actual substantive reaction or just something that fell off from the call. But then what do they signify? What do you think is the substance there in that conversation? And what's the import of that missing? You know, I don't know. And I don't want to speculate why the ellipses are there. Again, whether it was uh, a summary that the words were intelligible or whether this is something, uh, information that was removed more deliberately. I tend to think that if it was information removed deliberately, then eventually it's going to come out. I mean, at this point, we have the director, the acting director of national intelligence testifying in open session in front of the House intelligence community. We have the complaint with limited redactions being public. We have the White House having released a summary of the call. If there was something scratched out of the tr- out of the transcript of the summary that is going to come to light. So um, I think I'm going to hold off on speculating on it for now. As to the substance, so again, the two substantive issues that the president was requesting the government of Ukraine to get information, investigate or get information to provide to him and his personal attorney, Rudy Giuliani, one pertained to Uh, This alleged server that the president seems to think still exists, and he mentioned the company CrowdStrike, which, of course, is a United States cybersecurity company that is extraordinarily knowledgeable about foreign influence in in our electoral systems and had been involved in the investigation. And according to CrowdStrike, they have provided they they provided long ago all of the relevant forensic information to the FBI. So that's what that reference was uh, pertaining to. But again, a political request on the part of the president. And then the second is the second part of this uh, conspiratorial thinking that uh, that there is something worth investigating with respect to the Bidens. Both of these have nothing to do with U.S. foreign policy. And I think that's a point that that we need to emphasize, which is There is no credible argument 
that discussing those two things, whether they are conspiratorial or they are just a non-understanding of the part of the president, whatever is the reason, there that has nothing to do with U.S. foreign policy. And there is no credible argument that it does. And it demonstrates the president as the complainant, the whistleblower complainant alleges, it demonstrates the president using his position as president, using his foreign affairs authority, his conversation with a foreign leader, which is supposed to be about international cooperation and defense issues and serious national security issues. He's trying to exploit that relationship for his political gain. And that's corrupt. I want to ask you, going back to being in the room and what happens and immediately after, obviously, we know there's a readout of the call. Someone is charged with typing that up and providing that to individuals that participated. Obviously, we now know from the complaint that several people were talking about the call and perhaps their concerns about the call and the corruption that you just mentioned. Uh, But then we also now know from the complaint that the readout from this call was originally on one system uh, within the White House electronically, and it was taken down from that system and then put into a separate computer system reserved for code word level intelligence information um, and used for, for example, for covert action, as the complaint says. How often does that happen? The complaint says that it's not it's not the first time that a readout from a call has been put onto that server. Uh, But how rare is that in the context of everything else that was going on? Walk us through that process a little bit and and if that would make your ears perk up. So I didn't personally work in the White House. Um, So I can't say for sure that I have personal knowledge about whether or not that has ever occurred across various administrations. I will say as a former uh, attorney in the intelligence community that it certainly has the appearance of using the mechanisms of classified information that are intended to protect classified information, which by definition is information, if revealed, would cause some sort of harm to the United States, whether it's serious harm or grave harm, depending on the level of the classification. The reason the classification system exists is to protect that type of information, information that would cause harm to the United States. This would have been information that is politically damaging to the president. And one of the issues, whenever the intelligence community goes through a declassification process, so reviewing a document or something that is being reviewed for declassification purposes, a legitimate reason to keep something classified is that it meets that that definition I just mentioned, that it would cause some sort of harm to the United States' national security. An illegitimate reason to keep information classified is that it looks bad or it's politically damaging or it's embarrassing to an administration or even to a government agency or to the intelligence community itself. Those are not legitimate reasons to keep information classified. And so this looks like that. It looks like information being squirreled away on a system meant to protect national security information, but instead being used to protect embarrassing or politically damaging information. And that seems like an inappropriate use of the system. Have you ever known an official to shift a classification because something would be embarrassing or heard something along those lines? No. 
Not in my experience. Carrie, I did work at the White House, and that particular part of the complaint really struck me. I think you're right about the um, national security concerns versus uh, the personal concerns for the president. But this doesn't appear to be something that was more highly classified and was so sensitive that fewer people could see it. You're right. It was embarrassing. This actually feels like it was put in a box where the people who legitimately would want to see this to do their work could not find it. That in the parlance of Washington screams the word cover up. Knowing what you know about how the interagency process works, where do you think that might have come from? I mean, who who in the White House would have looked at this and said, this is so serious, no one should see this beyond uh, the president and the secretary of state? Well, according to the complaint, the complaint itself that's been declassified says that White House officials told the complainant they were, quote, directed by White House lawyers to remove the electronic transcript from the computer system uh, where they were stored um, and instead was loaded into the separate system. So according to the complainant, it was done at the direction of White House lawyers. It wasn't the national security advisor who had some overriding concern about our national security. It was a White House lawyer who may very well been looking after the president's political interests. All I have to go on right now is what's in the complaint. And so the complaint says that it was at the direction of White House lawyers. You know, it's an interesting point about lawyering. The White House lawyers are not there to protect the president's political interests. They don't work for Donald Trump. They work or any other president. They are White House counsel. They are there to give advice to the president in his capacity as president. And so it is an open question and I would imagine will be an area that the, the intelligence committees will be looking at as to why White House lawyers, if the complainant is correct, gave that advice. But just as a lawyering point and a government lawyering point, the role of the White House lawyers is to give advice to the president and the institution of the presidency, not to uh, protect his political interests. So again, this, I'm asking you for your opinion now, uh, but haven't these lawyers, and they are individuals rather than an institution, given the attitude they've taken towards executive privilege, um, in fact, even arguing that people who never worked in the White House have some protection under executive privilege, and that there's you know something called an executive immunity that um, appears to be a new creation out of this White House counsel's office. Haven't they at least created the impression that they're working for the president personally, not for the institution? Joe, I think there is an argument that this White House certainly and the Justice Department certainly have adopted extraordinarily expansive view of executive privilege. There certainly is a strategy to make broad claims about privilege. And I think that is a bit of strategy in terms of dealing with uh, the various inquiries and investigations that are open across multiple committees of Congress. I do think those assertions of executive privilege, even if they are extraordinarily, extraordinarily broad, are a little bit different than an allegation 
that White House lawyers might have been giving a direction solely to protect the president's political interests and trying to bury, if there's an allegation that they were trying to bury uh, a document that revealed the president was not faithfully executing his oath of office and his position. So I think there is, uh, I take your point, but I think there is actually a slight distinction. I want to ask about the congressional investigation and the next steps that happen here. So we know that Congress is going to have to investigate this, and it relates to a lot of classified material. And uh, a lot of individuals are mentioned in the report, uh, the complaint, the complainant's report. So I I want to talk about what's the best way for Congress to start doing this? Who is the priority and how do they prioritize what comes next? And, And knowing now, Uh, The early Republican talking point and the defense about the complaint is that the individual that wrote the complaint has no direct knowledge and there are just all of these people that were talking uh, and this person really doesn't know anything for sure. Um, So how does Congress, one, combat that and two, effectively march down the road piece by piece and gather the information they need to actually get to the bottom of what happened, when it happened and who did what in response? So, Katie, I actually don't think this is an incredibly complex investigation to conduct. Um, First of all, it looks like most of the information that is at issue in it is not classified. So this complaint was written in an unclassified way. There is a short classified addendum that was attached to it, which the president has uh, facilitated and directed a substantial part of it be uh, released in redacted form. So most of the complaint actually seems to be unclassified. The text of the phone call has been released by the president. So no more assertions of classified information in that. No more assertions of any kind of privilege in that. So there actually is quite a bit of unclassified and unprivileged information that is already available to the committees. I think the next step, I think, first of all, this complaint has been made and provided now to the House and Senate Intelligence Committees. And I think those are the committees, the two committees best positioned to conduct the investigations of this. It was extraordinarily important that the Senate voted uh, the other day to make sure that in a unanimous bipartisan way to make sure that this complaint was provided to the intelligence committees. So that was an important bipartisan step on the part of the entire Senate. And at this point, I expect that the intelligence committees are going to hear from the whistleblower and the whistleblower will be able to identify who the other government officials are that provided the information that formed the basis of the complaint. And then the committees can call those individuals to be interviewed. So I think there's actually a pretty defined set of individuals that are will have information relevant to this investigation, and the complaint and the text of the phone call are already available. So I don't I don't think it's an overly complex investigation, and I don't think that classified information is going to be that big of a bar in conducting it. So it should be able to be done fairly quickly, to be honest. I think you tweeted about this, but I wanted to ask, would you call Rudy? So that was in response to a report in a publication that was reporting that 
members of Congress, and particularly in the House, and I think it pertained to the House Judiciary Committee specifically, that they were considering whether or not to call Rudy Giuliani uh, to testify. I do not think that the House Judiciary Committee, in the context of its impeachment inquiry, should be calling Rudy Giuliani in an open hearing. I think that would be a circus. It would be counterproductive question as to whether or not he would be uh, forthcoming and truth-telling, and they don't need it for the purposes of this investigation. The relevant information is, did the president solicit foreign information and the assistance of a foreign government for his own political purposes? It's already there in the text of the phone call. Now it's just fleshing out that information and determining whether there were other instances and other phone calls that confirm that. And I think there are factual questions that need to be explored regarding the timing of the withholding of foreign assistance to Ukraine in the context of these conversations taking place. And so right now it looks like there is some circumstantial evidence that those two things are connected, but uh, the connections are not made explicitly in the text of the call that has been released. So I don't think that this is the time to distract from this serious inquiry that can be conducted by the intelligence committees to uh, backtrack and have a Lewandowski-type hearing again. That's just not constructive. And I think the other thing is that This week, as this complaint has unfolded, with the Senate resolution and with the Speaker's press conference announcing uh, her endorsement and and approval going forward of, of an actual impeachment inquiry, I think there is a seriousness of purpose that we have seen from more members of Congress. And again, I, I refer back to that Senate vote on the resolution Um, And also some comments even from one or two Republican senators in the past 24 to 48 hours that indicate that there are some members who understand the gravity of this allegation. And I hope that going forward, Congress will act in a way that continues to respect the gravity of the allegations that are made. Carrie, you've been incredibly generous with your time. So let me wrap up with one question. Uh, if you were a member of the Intel Committee, it's now clear from the DNI that the whistleblower will be allowed to testify privately to the committee. What are the two or three questions that you really need answers from from the whistleblower directly? Certainly the information that the committee members need to obtain from the whistleblower are who are the individuals that came to the whistleblower to report this information and share this information with the whistleblower because the whistleblower does appear to be one step removed from the actual conversation itself. So the the whistleblower can identify the additional fact witnesses for the committee. And then I think a second important avenue of inquiry is obtaining more facts to understand what was going on with the decision to withhold the foreign assistance to Ukraine. The combination of those two factual channels together should give the committee a pretty clear picture of what transpired this summer. Carrie, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate your time, uh, your insight, and your wisdom. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, Thanks, Carrie. 
Well, that was a great interview with Carrie. As always, her knowledge and experience is incredibly helpful to those of us sitting on the sidelines for this one. Joe, what'd you think? Yeah, I thought it was um, uh, very timely. You know, I think uh, I'll speak for myself here. Sometimes you get caught up in the politics of it and you don't really understand the underlying foundation of how the law works and why a whistleblower does what they do and how their structure works. And I think Carrie was very good at walking us through very methodically how the Whistleblower Act works, why it was normal for someone to have this information and put it all together the way he did, as opposed to someone in the deep state who was spying on the president. I think she was a little reticent on the involvement of the attorney general. That's what you'd expect from a lawyer. I'm a little less generous there. I really think that the idea that the inspector general of the intelligence community sees this as an urgent concern, I don't see how anyone could interpret it any differently and that it was not relevant to the DNI. Uh, That seems absurd to me. It seems exactly what Bill Barr does in almost every case, which is he acts as the president's private attorney rather than the attorney general of the United States. But that's my opinion. And anyone listening to Kerry now has a much better understanding of the basics of what now the politicians will debate as, you know, politics always overtakes the substance. Well, I think that's exactly right. And I agree with her that the individual who wrote the complaint either is a lawyer or had a good one or had some legal training. She's right that they walk through the facts. They cite the law explicitly, clearly, no flowery language uh, as a part of legal training. That's that's the best writing to the point, just straight factual statements. Um, I think it'll be interesting to see what the individual testifies to about the other individuals that were actually directly involved since it appears the complainant was not directly involved here. But I think she's right. I think this is uh, presents a lot of unclassified information that gives Congress plenty to go on to do its job, which she also said the OLC opinion uh, that there was nothing there there. You can disagree with it, but that's what they did. So now the ball is squarely in Congress's court to do their job, to investigate, to follow up and to get the full picture uh, of the story here. I completely agree with that. You're right that this was written very, very carefully in a very um, both lawyerly and strategic way and with an eye towards making this case eventually to the public. Joe, I wanted to ask you from your experience, what's it like to be in the White House right now? Unfortunately, I do have some experience of a White House that is facing impeachment. And a couple of things that I think are applicable. One is it's it's terribly frustrating to work in the executive branch and to know the issues you're working on, whether you're working on health care, immigration, um, taxes, the budget is uh, you know it's going to be ignored, um, you know, for the next three uh, to six months, maybe through the end of uh, the, uh, the, to the next election. And the reason it's frustrating is you need the media to pay attention to the things you're doing in order to build public support for whatever initiative you're working on so that you can get either the money for Congress or Congress to pass a law to get things done. You also have a, a, you know, a psychic need to have your work recognized. So it's terribly frustrating. It's depressing. It literally is depressing to wake up in the morning and be afraid to look at your phone. 
I hesitated there because in my time it was look at the newspaper. My, all my phone told me was if I'd missed a phone call. So it is emotionally a very difficult time. I think that's where the comparisons end. So I can't really speak to too much uh, about Trump. I, I would say the Trump White House is woefully unprepared uh, for what's about to hit them. Now, that may seem crazy because they have been in chaos and crisis since the very first day he took office. But this is very different. Let me go back to the Clinton administration. We had a, a pretty healthy, sophisticated communications um, infrastructure that was able to push out the information we wanted, a system of surrogates who would go out and make the case we were making, and a very well-respected uh, White House Counsel's Office that provided us with the content we needed to deal with a lot of these issues. And that was a big part in, in helping the president get through a very difficult time and the White House staff getting through a very a difficult time. This White House doesn't have any of that. I mean, we're past 200 days now of, uh, since the White House has held uh, a formal briefing you know, with the press secretary by herself up there taking questions. They've missed that opportunity. They don't seem to have the infrastructure around getting messages out. What they have is the president's Twitter account. And in some circumstances, the president's Twitter account, you know, is very effective at driving an agenda. But it's now the president who's under investigation. And, you know, the thing we learned, which is, I think, the most profound from 1997, 1998, the time period of, of impeachment, was – the president needs to show the public that he's focused on what they care about, not what he cares about. And the president's Twitter account is a reflection of only what he cares about. He cares about saving himself. He cares about lashing out at his opponents. He cares about playing the victim card. He cares about self-pity and, and indulging himself. And that, in my view, is a recipe for political disaster. People wonder, you know, how did President Clinton during the investigation get up to 73 percent job approval uh, when he was being impeached, the highest of his term? Well, it's because the public got insight into the to President Clinton, which was he was not focused uh, publicly uh, on the investigation. He was focused on getting the people's business done. And. President Trump has done just the opposite. I just don't think there's an upside to the politics of pity and the po politics of self-indulgement. I may be proven wrong. It's been done many, many times. But I, I come back to this idea that they don't know what's about to hit them and they are not prepared uh, for what's about to hit them. All right, Joe. Well, thank you. And we're grateful to Carrie as always. Until next time. Thanks, Katie. Thank you for listening to Words Matter. For more information on our show and hosts, visit wordsmattermedia.com. Please rate and review Words Matter on Apple Podcasts and other podcast providers.